So I want to invite you to continue with me on our journey this morning into uh, Christmas. And our theme is Christmas with Jesus. And so I want to invite you to turn to the book of Matthew. If you brought the word with you today, turn to Matthew chapter 1. And in just a little bit, we're going to be looking at verse 18. But we have another passage that we're going to jump into even before we get to that. And I'll give you that information, that text a little bit later. But I, I want to begin as we continue in this theme, Christmas with Jesus. I want to begin by saying, uh, you know, I love stories. Uh, I love stories of families, especially uh, when uh, those stories are interwoven with my family. And one story that has been kind of a thrill for us is, is the family and the story of the Willindas. And I'm not sure if you know who the Willinda family is. In fact, they're, they're kind of their, their name is the Flying Willindas because they're, they're tightrope walkers. And in 2012 in June, uh, a man by the name of Nick Willinda did a feat that had never been done before, and that is that he walked across on a tight wire, a high wire, across the Niagara Falls. And he did this in June of 2012. Anybody remember that? It was national news. You remember that one that was the national news? And so Nick Melinda, he did this, this really remarkable feat, and it was on the news stations and, and programs and such. But um, I'll never forget when Nick was sitting in my office in Florida where I pastored, and Nick was telling me about his family. He and his uncle was there at our church helping us with some, some things that we were doing. In fact, we had a Christmas program called the Living Christmas Tree. And the Living Christmas Tree was a tree that held about 80 or 90 people. And Heidi always stood in the very top, my wife here. And we had, you know, this huge Christmas tree and all this stuff going on and drama and life-size village and all this. And at the end of the program, the climax of the program, we wanted to fly angels. And we did that several years. And so the Willindas came in and they did all the wiring and all the rigging so that we could fly angels at the end of the program. And in fact, one year we flew Santa Claus in from a dark place of the sanctuary up high. We flew Santa Claus in on a sleigh and he landed on the stage. Now, that was just a little bit over the top. It's interesting. They used a tiny little cable uh, that held this tiny little cable that held 3000 pounds. And so we had this guy uh, that was in the sleigh dressed up like Santa Claus and he comes in. It was our opening number and, and it was fantastic. So the Willindas, they helped us with all of this. It was interesting getting to know the Willindas, different things that they they did in the community and, of course, around the world. Uh, but but, you know, they're not without that as a family is not without tragedy. I learned from Nick Lewinda, he is the seventh generation high wire tightrope walker. Seventh generation. Now figure in your head how many years, that's hundreds of years, they have been, as family, they have been doing this feat. And uh, he shared with me that there have been a couple times when tragedy did strike. And one was in 1962, that's the year I was born. In 1962, there were, the Willinda family was doing a human pyramid on a, a high wire, and it was seven people of their family that was building this human pyramid on just one wire. Something went wrong and the pyramid collapsed and two of the Willindas fell to their death and one was paralyzed for life. They've never done that feat again, but, but uh, tra tragedy strikes again in 1978 in San Juan, Puerto Rico, where Nick, this gentleman right here, where Nick Willinda's grandfather was doing a high wire walk between two high buildings in San Juan, Puerto Rico in 1978. And something went wrong with the rigging, and the wire broke, and his grandfather fell to his death. And, and then the Willinda family continues on, and of course Nick does this remarkable feat. 
And, you know, as I'm thinking about that, I'm wondering in my mind, why in the world would the Walinda family want to do this? I mean, why would they take this tremendous amount of risk? In fact, as I was looking at the Christmas story and remembering how Jesus came as a baby, God became flesh and, and all the things that God did for us. And, I, and I'm thinking about the great risk that God took and, and, in, and not exactly the same way. I'm wondering why in the world would God take such a risk as becoming a little baby? You say, well, pastor, there's no risk. I mean, he's God. How, how would this be a risk for God to become flesh? Well, it's a risk because, you see, there is this, this, this risk that, that mankind would reject him. The risk that he would not be accepted by men and women. In fact, he has not been accepted by much of the world. And, and, and he still became flesh and he still dwelt among us as a little baby and the story still unfolds before us. And so as I, I look at the idea of, of God taking such a risk, I, I'm wondering why would God do that? I mean, I'm trying to process in my mind's eye, why would God become flesh? I mean, why would he take this risk of being rejected by man? And when I look at the scriptures and I search the word, there's only one reason that I believe that God would take this kind of risk. And that one reason is because he loves you. Because he loves you, because he loves me, because he loves mankind, because of God's love, he's willing to take this step into humanity, becoming human fully himself, so that he might reach us for his glory. Amen. I I love that Jesus sets the pattern for us as he's born and becomes a man and ministry begins, that Jesus sets the pace for us. For his disciples, and we see it even in the life of the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20. And looking at verse 7, if you have God's word, go there. Before we look at our, our main text, our primary text, look at Acts chapter 20, looking at verse 7. And, uh, and we read there, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. So it's interesting. Here's Paul. He's excited about, you know, what he's talking about, excited about Christ, the word. And, and so he's intense on getting the message across, knowing that he has this only one night to share who Jesus Christ is. And so he's talking until midnight. He just keeps talking. And then and then something strange happens. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. And so you can imagine here they are on the third story. Not sure whether it was a window or maybe it was a rooftop. And he's sitting there on the edge of the rooftop. He's laid down and this man goes to sleep while Paul is talking. Have you ever done that in college class? I'm sure you have. And so he falls asleep. Paul is talking. He's droning on. And this young man, Eutychus, falls asleep and he falls three stories. Now, I don't know about you, but if I fell three stories, I would probably die. And I don't know if there's some symbolism here that in this fall, there is this representation of mankind and the spiritual condition of people's hearts for those that are rejecting the message, the, the Savior, the story of Jesus. For those that are not accepting who Jesus Christ is. And maybe there is some symbolism that man is in this this free fall of spiritual death. And there's that kind of representation here. But that's not the end of the story. Now bear with me. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. 
He says, don't be alarmed. He said he's alive. Now, imagine in my mind's eye that Paul is praying maybe something at this point. Maybe don't be alarmed. Maybe that's the prayer. And then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. And after talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Again, maybe some symbolism here that Jesus Christ comes down upon us and he lays upon all of our guilt and all of our despair. And Jesus lays himself over all of our sin. And it's Jesus that brings life. And he brings us back to life no matter what it is that we've done, no matter where we've been. We have that dynamic, maybe that truth that kind of parallels the, the experience that we have with, with, with life. And, and then we look at Acts 20, verse 35. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. Now, remember those words, because, again, this is a season of anticipation. As this candle reminds us that we are anticipating something. There is something that is being unfolded before us and creating this anticipation in us. And it's not in the commercialization of the holiday. It's not in, in what we do in our family traditions, not that I'm against family tradition. I love the holidays and I love exchanging gifts. But there's something more, something underneath that, something that is deeper to this holiday season than what, you know, the world sees and the world is trying to propagate. But, but yet in this passage, we're reminded that maybe there is something that is deeper, something that is longer lasting and something that brings relevance to this holiday season. And that is that it is more blessed to give. Remember that. It is more blessed to give than it is to what? To receive. I love the sermon title I found on a church bulletin. And here's the title. Christmas is not your birthday. <laughs> I thought, now what if somebody has their birthday really on September, December 25th? I don't know. Anybody have their birthday on Christmas? But anyhow. But, but Christmas is not your birthday. I love that. It's not. And I know we enjoy, again, our traditions and the family experience, but Christmas, I mean, it's, it's not about us. It's not about, you know, all the things that we're getting. It's something that is deeper than that. And, and I think it's about ministry and it's about doing that ministry. And it's not being separated from the ministry where ministry is clean. Oh, here's my money. I make my donation. But you see, it's, it's, it's something that can be more than that. And it's something that's being the hands and the feet of Jesus. And I think of Paul as he lays himself on that boy that fell from the third story. And Paul gets down. And I don't know what the condition of the boy's body was was at this point. But Paul lays on him. He wraps his arms around him. And he gets dirty. I imagine that's kind of dirty work. And Christmas is possibly calling us to something that... That might force us to engage our culture and our society and those that are living in the margins of society. We're claiming it as a church, right? And so maybe this Christmas we are motivated to be involved in ministry. And I look at this passage and I, I, I see in regards to Paul and what he does. I mean, it's a, really it's kind of a bizarre story. I know that. It's kind of an odd story. The boy falls kind of dark. He dies, but Paul gets down and he gets dirty and ministry happens. And you can guarantee, I can guarantee that what happens when that boy falls and Paul comes down, the boy comes alive. I guarantee that got some people's attention. 
Well, what would happen if all of a sudden we are engaging in ministry in our community in such a way that it gets people's attention? And people just say, wow, look what that look at what that church did. Wow, look what that those believers did. Instead of all the negativity we hear sometimes on media and the world as, as they portray people that believe in Christ in a negative way. What, what if we could be so engaged in ministry that people just scratch their head and say, wow, those people are really loving people. Amen. You see, what I see in the spirit is that a life was revived by another. If I say, okay, what is the... The self-evident truth here or the axiom that life was received and revived by another. In fact, the notes in your bulletin, here's where you fill in the first sentence. Spiritual transformation happens just like that when one life invests in another life. When one life invests in another life. You see, transformation happens when that happens. When one life invests in another life, that life is transformed. Folks, when I met Jesus and I began to walk with Jesus, it's because people impacted my life for the cause of Christ. I I imagine my mind's eye, this is the kind of church that we are. That we're mobilized in this way. And lives are transformed because of ministry done in this manner. Matthew chapter 1. Let's go to our text now. Matthew chapter 1. Beginning in verse 18. This is our text this morning. Matthew 1. Beginning in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And we heard her this morning appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Precious Father in heaven, I thank you for the word this morning. I thank you, Father, for the, the story that you are... Really weaving into our lives. And it's possible that some here today are hearing the story in, in, a, in a brand new light. And, and maybe possibly there is some spark, some light or light that is coming alive in that one. And I pray that, Lord, that you, you would continue to move that heart. I, I thank you, Lord, that we are reminded this morning that it's in anticipation that we light the candle. Anticipation that we, we are reminded of the birth as you became flesh. And dwelt among us, Father. And so I pray that you would just speak to our hearts as we read the word this morning. Anoint and bless the word in its reading. We pray and we ask all these things in Jesus Christ's glorious name. And all God's people said, Amen. So, obviously, we look at the passage here, um, the story. And, and Joseph was being asked, really, to take a risk, in my assessment. And I don't think Joseph really understood what it was that he was being asked to do. I mean, in a sense, he understood to some degree because the angel, you know, told him. But that once he hears the message from the angel, then now something's happening in Joseph's mind. And he's processing, you know, what it is that he's going to do. I mean, how he he's going to 
respond in whether he's going to invest in this young life that is forming, you know, in the stomach of, of this wife he's betrothed to by the name of Mary. So it's interesting to kind of just think about all that because really it's a divine moment in history that we are talking about this morning, the divine moment in history that changes all things. And, and you know, there's this, this, this idea that he has to throw all in and be all in. In fact, I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but Joseph could have not done that. I mean, Joseph had the choice to not be all in, but he had to make the choice. He makes the choice that he's all in. He jumps in with both feet and he says, okay, I'm going to have some faith here that God knows what he's doing. And I'm going to have some faith and follow through in the plan that God is unfolding right now before me. And it's easy to talk about it this morning, this many years later. But folks, imagine this. Joseph had to make a decision and walk in faith. So what are the faith lessons? Well, let's look at the verses. Go to verse 19. Let's go back to verse 19 and look at the faith lesson. In verse 19, remember we read there, because Joseph, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law... And yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. So so Joseph in this decision, okay, I'm all in. I'm going to jump in with both feet was saying, okay, I'm going to go against the grain. I'm going to go against what is culturally acceptable or or be anti-cultural or or, or anti-relevant. However you want to define it. You see, he had to make this decision to say, if I'm going to be a man of faith, it may not be popular. I'm wondering if this rings a bell with anybody. When we talk about being people of faith and we're saying, okay, real faith, not faith that's acceptable to our culture or fits our generation, but to say having real faith, because you see, there's some things in the Bible that are not logical, some things we cannot, you know, define away or explain away by science. There's some things that we have to accept simply by faith. And so Joseph, he decides, okay, I'm going to have faith. I'm going to walk by faith. And I'm going to believe that this is real and this is true. I, I was interested in a survey that was taken by Barner Research. And in the question that they had on the survey, and they questioned several people in America in the survey. And the question was, is there absolute truth? Is there absolute truth? Well, the result of the survey is that, listen to this, 66, 66% of Americans believe there is no such thing as absolute truth. That's pretty high, man. That's way more than 50%. 66% of Americans, and, and, and they believe that different people can define truth. This is what the survey presented. They believe that <clears throat> different people can define truth in conflicting ways and still be correct. <clears throat> and then in the age group of 18 to 25, bear with me. In the age group of 18 to 25, 72% believe that there's no absolute truth. That's interesting. Darwin reduced morals down to nothing but animal instincts. So, you see, it's clear that if we say we're going to live by faith and our actions are going to reflect that we have faith, It's probably going to affect our social status. Remember, my idea was in verse 19 is that faith investing may affect our social status. I mean, who says that we have to follow culture? I mean, we're so in tune to what's happening around us and want to be relevant and all that. I'm a I want to be relevant. But who says that we have to follow culture if the the voice in our head, which is God, the Holy Spirit, that is saying that you be the trendsetter, you be the example, you be the one that people point to and say, wow, they have faith. 
And they say, wow, there is an example of what it means to, to be loving and to be kind and to, to be a Christian and listen to that voice that is, that is calling you to what God is calling you to and, and stop worrying about what other people think. Because if you worry about what other people think, folks, listen to me, young people, you will be like a styrofoam cup in the ocean, being tossed to and fro by the wind and the waves, never finding stability in life if you constantly worry about what other people think. Amen. I like this quote I came across. Here it is. A tiger doesn't lose sleep over the opinion of sheep. (laughs) I love that. Man, we serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we don't have to make it so complex. It, it, it can be this profound theology can be made simple like one theologian. He defines it like this. He says faith and works. And this would agree with the Apostle Paul. He says faith and works are like the legs on a soldier. One leg is faith and one leg is works. And it's faith and it's works and it's faith and it works. And so we are faithful and we're putting action to our faith and we work in a way that glorifies God and shows that we have faith in that God. Amen. And again, it may not be all that popular. And so we see that there in verse 19. But what do we see in verse 20? Look at verse 20 with me. We look at verse 20 here for just a moment. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. So God knows something about what's going on in the mind of of Joseph and that there was this fear. So there's this cause to not be afraid. He needed this instruction. Do not be afraid. So my idea here, verse 20, my faith lesson is faith investing may cause fear. Say that with me out loud. Faith investing may cause fear. You know, the fact is being first usually means one of two things. If you're the first to start something, the first to walk in faith or the first to launch a new idea, it means you're one of two things. Either you're crazy or you're a leader. It's like the video I showed to many of our leaders uh, about the, the dancing guy, you know. He was just considered a lone nut because he was out there dancing by himself. And then pretty soon a guy joins him and then somebody else joins him and somebody else. Pretty soon there's a whole crowd and it becomes a movement. And it began where people thought he was probably just a lone nut. And see, faith is like that many times because leading is is scary. And leaders of conviction, by the way, are not a personality type. Leaders of conviction, it's not a personality type. It's, it's those that's heard the voice of God and they're responding to the voice and they're saying, I'm going to live in faith for God's glory. And those that have a, a conviction are those that are leaders of conviction. They come in all shapes and sizes and they come in every generation because we have conviction about what God has put upon our heart. Amen. And I think of Joseph, man, he he led. Why did Joseph lead here? He made this decision. He says, I'm all in. Okay, I believe he leads. Why? Because he heard the voice of God. I like one man said, no one follows an uncertain trumpet. Think about it. No one follows an uncertain trumpet. People will follow the trumpet of the Lord with no question. And, And the discovery of God's voice and hearing the sound of his voice or the whisper of his voice or the shout of God's voice is key. It's very key. I mean, it's vital. Like the King David. Remember, David, the people were clamoring and wanting him to be king. And again and again, they tried to lift David up to be the king. And he was going to be one day. He'd been anointed, remember, by God, Samuel. But he 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 was not ready until when? When did David become king? He became king 
when he heard the voice of God. And when he heard the voice of God, then he responded to God and was obedient to God. And he became the king as God had planned him to be and was able to rule with confidence. Here's my statement. We can face the fear of faith when we find the voice of Almighty God. We can face the fear of faith when we find the voice of Almighty God. So investing, faith investing may cause fear. Here's the last one. Looking at verse 21. Follow me now. Faith investing, verse 21. Faith investing may require us to see beyond ourselves. Look at that verse now. Verse 21. She will give birth to a son. The angel says she'll give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And you can imagine there's no way. You know, on God's earth, that, that he would able, be able to understand and comprehend the, the magnitude of this promise. Because the magnitude of this promise was for all of mankind. Beyond his imagination. And so he had to embrace this. He said, I'm all in. I'm stepping all in. He had to embrace this idea that maybe God could see beyond what he could see. And so this truth stands. Faith investing may require us to see beyond ourselves and that maybe the plan of God is bigger than you can imagine. I mean, think of your own life and how God's working and how God's moving in your life and that God's plan is bigger than you could ever dream. And Joseph, to be effective, had to make a decision and and ask, you know, the question, was it worth the risk? As we began talking about risk with the Walinda family. I mean, why are they doing that? Was it worth the risk? God becomes flesh at the risk of being rejected by mankind. Why did he do that? The only reason we know that God would do that is because he loves us. Because God loves you. Here's my challenge. I said to you last Sunday morning, I gave you a challenge at the end of the message. And today I'm going to give you another challenge. Here is our challenge. The challenge is that you would gift somebody this Christmas season, gift somebody this Christmas season that is less fortunate than you. That's the challenge, that you take the risk, you take the step of faith, and and maybe it means getting your hands dirty, whatever it means. The challenge is that every one of us, whether we are a teenager, whether we're a senior adult, no matter what our age is, that we bless and we gift somebody that's less fortunate than ourselves during this Christmas season. And let's turn Christmas up on end and make Christmas to be about what it's supposed to be about. And that is to represent Christ to others. My wife and I were in our first church. And that was in Greenville, Texas. Went to a little church uh, about ten people. They had ten people in the congregation. And we were there about five and a half years. And during that time it grew to about 170 Maybe I think we got to about 200 before we left, but averaging about 170. Um, but our, our income was $175 a week. And it was a time when um, they paid the preacher with chickens. Some of you know what I mean when I say that. That means that they, they gave us food pounding. We had, we had student loans that we had to pay for. We had three kids at home, a brand new baby about a year old, and then a son that was maybe three years old, and a, a daughter maybe five or six years of age. So we had three little kids at home. We're living on $175, and we'd get down to maybe one or two cans of soup in the cabinets. That was it. And then lo and behold, there was a table at church that groceries would appear on and and for those of you that don't know what that is they called that in the old days they called that a food pounding 
Now, that didn't mean that they beat us with food, but it meant that they sent the word out secretly to all the congregation, bring groceries for the pastor. And we would have not survived financially if those good people had not given us a food pounding about every six months. And that's how we survived. Well, it's towards the end of that assignment that a couple in the church that had just kind of took Heidi and I under their wing. They just loved on us. You know, it's good. Pastors need that too. And so this couple took us under their wing and they just loved on us. And they decided one Christmas season that they were going to gift us their car. Now, just a minute. Let me let me just explain the car to you. The car was one of those long Buick boats, you know, like a 1972 or something like this. You know, a 25-year-old or 20-year-old car, just long boat. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, as the headlines fell out of those cars, you know, and literally, not exaggerating, there was at least no less than two to 3,000 staples that they had stapled in the headlining to keep the headlining up. And then when we got the car, we put another couple thousand staples in it. The car had a big rust spot on this fender over here and a rust spot over here in this long boat. But man, it ran smooth as a top. Now, Heidi and I only had one car and three little kids. This allowed us to really kind of live normally. So I left the good car at home so Heidi could use it with the kids. And I drove the big boat, the gifted car. I got to drive that to work. Now, to the outsider and to others, they might have said, oh, that's a terrible gift. But to this little pastor and this poor family, early in ministry, we felt, we felt like millionaires. It was an awesome gift. So be careful not to judge what it is the Holy Spirit is saying to you that you need to give, that you need to bless somebody during this Christmas season. And I bet the Holy Spirit will speak to you and your heart will be moved. And there will be somebody that you know that God is laying on your heart to gift, to give something to during this holiday season. Now, I imagine in my mind's eye, I shared this with the early service, pretty full service. I imagine our mind's eye with three or four hundred people in our church, what would happen to our community if every one of us would be obedient in gifting somebody else something, uh, somebody that's less fortunate than you. You know, wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't that be awesome if we, every one of us, were to do that? That's our challenge, that we gift somebody less fortunate than us. And I want to invite you to do it. We don't have to be public about it. It can be private, just between you and the Lord. But I challenge you this morning. To be the hands of Jesus, be the feet of Jesus, and bless somebody that's less fortunate than you. And I believe God will be glorified in that in this holiday Advent season. Let's stand. Precious Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, that you are you're giving us some faith lessons today in this the beginning of this Advent season. That we are anticipating, yes, your birth. We remember that and honor that with great respect. But we're also, Father, motivated today to be your church, to be your hands and your feet. And and we're motivated that we might gift and that we might honor you, Father, by maybe looking around us and seeing people, those that are maybe less fortunate than us, and then just bestow something upon them. I don't know what that means. It's going to be something different for everyone. But, Father, help us not to to, to resist what you're, you're guiding us, how you're directing us. Lord, I I believe that you can use every one of us this morning. So, Father, speak to the heart of that young man. Speak to the heart of that young lady this morning. I pray for that, those grandparents, Lord, that you would just move their heart and we would know how can we bless somebody in our world for your glory. 
So, Father, we just worship you today. We honor you in this commitment, this challenge that you've given us for this Advent season. In Jesus Christ's glorious name.